0: dot com slash Lincoln odu modern management made simple. Welcome back to the Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Tom Nichols. He's a specialist in international security affairs, including u s. Russia relations, nuclear strategy, and NATO. Tom is also a contributing writer at the Atlantic and today has a book coming out called our own worst enemy the assault from within on modern democracy however that all pales in comparison to the fact that tom is a five-time undefeated jeopardy champion tom let me just say this i once went to burbank to try out for jeopardy i did not make it still one of my most shaming moments in my life but welcome to the show thank
1: you reid and there is no shame in flunking the jeopardy test it wipes out about 95 percent of the applicants so uh you know it just means that you're a normal intelligent person
0: <laughs> well i like to think so so tom i want to talk about a few things today later on i want to talk about your new book our own worst enemy and i want to talk about this idea of this sort of mass denial and diversion from reality that we see in so many americans now whether or not it's COVID vaccines or elections or whatever But first, I want to talk about Afghanistan and what we've seen in the past week or so as American troops pulled out. We see these scenes of chaos at the airport, just the horrific scenes of people falling from the landing gear of aircraft taking off. And you wrote an article for The Atlantic this week called Afghanistan is your fault. The American public now has what it wanted. So let's get into that. We saw that the Taliban took Kabul. The Afghan president Ashraf Ghani fled the country with apparently like $160 million in cash. He just popped up in the UAE. On our last podcast, Rick Wilson and Trigby Olsen gave our thoughts on the situation over there, as well as a reaction to Biden's address. So, Tom, you have an interesting take on what's going on, and I read your article. So, how do you see what's unfolded here in the past few days?
1: I think it's really important, first of all, to um, draw a distinction between the policy that Biden chose which I think was inevitable. You know, I don't even blame Trump for choosing the same policy. I don't blame Obama for doing it the American people, rightly or wrongly. And I'm one of the guys who said, small counterterrorism force, maintain a presence. Americans don't give up territory they've paid for. But, you know, the American people have spoken. 70 to 80 percent at any given time keep telling their presidents, all of their presidents of both parties, get out of Afghanistan. So Biden actually did it. But you have to separate that from the execution of that policy that's going on right now, which is just a mess. And they're going to be studying this at policy schools and war colleges for years. The past 72, 96 hours are going to be autopsied forever because, you know, it's a hot mess. Now, with that said, there was no way that pulling out of Afghanistan wasn't going to be a hot mess in some way. There was going to be panic. There was going to be chaos. But. Adam Kinzinger brought this up recently. He said he can't figure out why Bagram was closed before we started all this, why we were leaving some of the staging areas that would have allowed us a lot more mobility. There's just something that went wrong here. Look, I support President Biden. I think he made the right decision here. Even if I'm uncomfortable with the decision, I think he's done what a president does, which is lead and own the policy. But I think the execution has really been a, a disaster so far, and I hope we recover just before we started talking today, I saw Lloyd Austin kind of trying to brief this. And it looks like the Pentagon is trying to you know, get its feet back under it. But clearly, we were just knocked off balance by, I think, lack of planning and lack of coordination and poor intelligence and a lot of other problems that are turning this into a
0: mess. I mean, let me ask you this, because you know, we saw if you go back now 18 years, and I'm going to switch to another forever war, Iraq, which was that we were really good at fighting the war, but we lost the peace almost immediately. And they had put a former general there to be Viceroy. He lasted like a week before they brought in Bremer. This is the other end of that funnel, which is we knew we were going to leave. At some point, somebody from the president, the National Security Council, the Pentagon, and the State Department, all the way down to, you know, men and women in uniform or in suits on the ground knew this was going to happen. So utilizing your experience... Is this a bureaucratic issue? Is it an execution issue? Is it all of the above? Like, how do we get to a place where thousands of Afghans are running onto the runway trying desperately to get out of town when someone knew this was going to be the day and then all of a sudden it was? The bureaucratic
1: question is a really interesting one because there's plenty of signs here that the bureaucracy was not talking to itself enough. I mean, just over a week ago, the embassy in Kabul literally advertised a job. (laughs) I mean, how does that happen? How does the State Department become so detached from what's going on? Or how do they become so isolated from the decisions that somebody in the embassy in Kabul says, hey, come work for us. We have a job open. That's a small thing that's a sign of a big disconnect. And I think part of the thing was nobody, after 20 years of happy talk and a lot of, I think in some cases, outright lying and a lot of just rose-colored glasses problems, Nobody wanted to be first in the bureaucracy to say, listen, I'm going to be the guy pulling out and making plans here for the worst possible outcome. Because the worst thing, as anyone who has ever worked in the government can tell you, the worst thing is to have somebody at the table point at you and say, not a team guy. You're not on the team, bro. You know, you're not in for the big win. You're not supporting the president's policy. And I worry about, Not just this foreign policy establishment, but every foreign policy establishment in the United States over 20 years, not having people in the room who stand up and say, wait a minute, I'll take the bullet here. I'll be the contrarian. I'll be the guy who says, maybe this isn't going to go so well. And I think there wasn't somebody in the room doing that at the
0: time. So there's a couple of questions I have that lead from that. One is, you know, having read David Halberstam's The Best and the Brightest, seems like that happened in the 60s also, right after we got into Vietnam. And so, over the course of 50 some years, we apparently haven't learned any lessons or haven't found any people more willing to do that. And secondly, do you think that there's some sort of like, because there's barely anything such as a secret anymore, that if you told somebody at the embassy, like, this is going to happen in the next 10 days, it wouldn't be a secret more than the next 10 minutes? So they're just trying to keep everything secret. So, therefore, the consular officer who posts that job description has no idea what's going on.
1: I'm not sure I buy that part. I mean, I do think that you know, the levels of classification, right? You know, secret, top secret, don't tell the State Department kind of problems within the bureaucracy or they're always there. But I also think that there was just a problem with somebody being willing to think through the worst outcomes because the president had made a decision. You knew it from the campaign. Say this about Joe Biden. He's been remarkably consistent. No one should have elected Joe Biden thinking he wasn't going to pull out of Afghanistan because it's been a pretty consistent position. And so once the president makes a decision, I think nobody wants to be the guy who walks in the room and says, Mr. President, this thing's going to go bad really fast. Sir, we're going to execute your policy, but I'm just telling you, this thing could turn into a gigantic circus. And I think you brought up Iraq. I think the same thing happened with Iraq. Bremer, I'm going to disband the Iraqi army. What could go wrong? Everything. Everything. <laughs> but of course, you don't want to be the guy that's told, thank you for your input. By the way, we're a little low on coffee. Why don't you go take care of that? Right. In Alaska. In Alaska. Right. You're the new commander of the radar station in Alaska. I think, you know, the military is very much about mission fulfillment. And nobody wants to say that the mission might be completely hosed up and not a good idea. We're already starting to see the blame storming between the military and the intelligence community, which the CIA in particular was a lot gloomier about this. But I, I will remind people the CIA is paid to be gloomier about this. That's also part of their culture. The military says, listen, we're the boots on the ground. We're achieving it. We're training these guys. And, you know, the civilian intelligence analysts are back in the United States saying, we're the professional skeptics, because that's the nature of being an intelligence analyst is to be a skeptic about everything. A lot of what's happening and unfolding in front of us now, I think, are kind of the normal pathologies of a large foreign policy bureaucracy, but that doesn't really excuse any of this. When you talk about let's not tell people because then it's not a secret anymore, I mean, everybody's known since Biden was inaugurated and because of Trump's deadline, which Biden kind of pushed out, hey, we're leaving sooner or later. I don't think there would have been this huge stampede if the people that had helped us and the special visa people had started kind of trickling out of Afghanistan in preparation for this. We closed up Bagram a while back. You didn't see everybody run for the exits. We were pulling out of some of the major Afghan cities. People knew this was coming. But this kind of last moment of, okay, I guess we're done. We're leaving today. You know, there was a great Twitter thread and I recommended to people the director of the Afghan central bank literally went to work the morning Kabul felt because he just was like out of the loop and nobody could believe how fast this was happening. And somewhere, somebody's got to answer for that. I'm not saying they should have seen it coming. I think it's really unfair to say, you know, you guys should walk around crystal balls and pointy hats and be able to protect the future. But there should have been a better plan in place. The Pentagon specializes in worst case scenarios. Where was the plan for this one? And I think that's a legitimate question to
0: ask. Can I get super nerdy and historical for you for a second? So in the wake of World War II, Harry Truman and Congress passed, I believe it was the National Security Act of 1947, which established the National Security Council, sort of a clearinghouse. you know, maybe even before what we would come to call the Cold War for how America was going to be a superpower in the second half of the 20th century. But that was like 70 years ago. And so has the system by which we make these decisions become so sort of bloated and overgrown that it can't even do the jobs it's supposed to do? Because theoretically, if you have a national security advisor sitting at the White House at the right hand of the president with all of these experts sitting behind cipher locked doors and in the situation room, their job is to ensure that everybody knows what they're supposed to know. Isn't that right? I don't want to go all super nerdy with
1: you, but you've too late my academic gene. <laughs> the National Security Act of 1947, even now, pretty much just means what presidents want it to mean. Yes, it statutorily creates a National Security Council and statutorily creates all of these functions and a National Security Advisor, but the legislation does not and cannot tell a president how to run it. And that's why some National Security advisors are Brent Scowcroft and some are Condi Rice. Some are very powerful and in the loop, and some are basically shown the door and told to, you know, wait outside, because there is no legal foundation for that kind of activity. And you don't want that. I mean, you don't want the president's office being managed by, even if it were constitutional, which it isn't, you don't want the president's office and its workings being managed by micro amounts of legislation. And by the way, there was a second round where the military is concerned, the 1986 Goldwater Nichols Act, you know, which reforms the whole Pentagon and the military. So, you know, do we need an updating to those laws? I am skeptical that you can fix things by that kind of legislation, if only because the real question is, can you change the culture of those institutions? And, you know, Goldwater Nichols succeeded in some of that, trying to break the military out of its stovepipes. You know, the army can't just talk to the army anymore, and the air force can't just fly planes and so on. But I think this comes back to what I wrote in The Atlantic. We also have to remember the role of the American people here. We're spending a lot of time talking about what did the CIA do? What did the military do? What did the president do? The American people wanted this. And I think that's why I wrote the piece. By the way, authors never pick their own headlines. So Afghanistan is your fault was my editor's, but it does capture what I was trying to say that, look, you know, the American public said we want out. And of course, if you ask them, there was just a poll yesterday from Reuters. You know, a majority of people want us to get out and a majority of people want us to go back in if that's what's necessary. I mean, the American public is literally incoherent on these things. You know, a majority of Americans think the whole thing was doomed. And then a majority of Americans also say, but if we have to go back in, we should go back in. And I think, you know, in the end, before we spend a lot of time putting people on spits and roasting them, you know, in front of Congress for this, but I do think there should be hearings, we also have to think about is this government doing what we want it to do? And I think the answer was, yeah, right now the government is doing what we wanted it
0: to do, just not with particular competence. So as I mentioned, we talked about the president's speech. Which I thought you know was very stark, you know this is what we believe you know is in the interest of America's national foreign policy. felt like maybe it came two days too late, right? It, it seemed like that even to your point, even the White House didn't have a, a contingency plan because everybody was on vacation or whatever it's august, right, But to your point, like if you're going to do something that big, you have to assume something that you don't expect might happen but you have a different take on Biden's speech. Tell the listeners how you saw it. I didn't like it. And I'm a former
1: speechwriter. I worked in the Senate for uh, the late John Hines of Pennsylvania. I wrote a lot of floor statements and Senate speeches for the senator. And I just thought it violated a lot of speechwriting 101 rules. If you start by what went right, to his credit, the president walks out and says, my policy, buck stops with me. I own this. That was exactly the right thing to do. That was the adult thing to do. The things I would not have done, I would never have mentioned the previous administration. You know, they're not around anymore. And by the way, it's absolutely true that the Biden administration was handed a really crap hand. But, you know, if you're going to be president, you play the hand you're dealt. You don't complain about the hand and who gave it to you. I also thought there wasn't enough about our allies and particularly our Afghan allies. I also thought there should have been, you know, here's the situation on the ground. Here's the things that are going right. Here's the things that are going wrong. And here's what I'm, as your president and commander in chief, here are the things I'm fixing right now that are going to happen. And I just didn't feel like that was a particularly good speech. His speechwriters thought if he just walks out there and says, the buck stops here and then kind of leaves, that's enough. And it was necessary, but not sufficient. And I, I think I said on Twitter, if I'd have been the chief of staff and that draft had come up to my desk, I'd have gone back down to the speechwriting shop and come back with heads you know, it wasn't awful. It wasn't a kind of Trumpian whining kind of thing. I think we've defined deviancy down so much because of Trump that any presidential speech that isn't completely sociopathic and ignorant (laughs) and whiny, you know, we say, well, that was Churchillian, but, you know, (laughs) by comparison, but I just think there was a lot more to be done in that speech. And I think, yeah, it's August. People are on vacation. Well, you know what? I'm sorry, but you're the White House. When there's a war going on and we're pulling out, you're not on vacation. That's not an answer.
0: Well, and as I like to say about when I think about Trump last year, as COVID was coming to sort of front and center of American life and everything else, is that, you know, the White House commands the greatest collection of people, assets, and resources ever compiled by humanity. And so somebody somewhere saw this thing going down on a screen somewhere, and maybe they pushed the button and nobody paid attention, but you're right. I mean, and it seems like every White House, for whatever reason, needs to remember that they're not omniscient. And that, you know, real life will jump up and bite them before they sort of shake off the newness of being in office and figure out where to go from there.
1: You know, just to pile onto that point, I don't know what it's like to work for Joe Biden. I don't know how well he takes bad news. I don't know how angry he gets if people tell him stuff's going wrong. You know, it's possible that somebody saw this and said, you know, man, I don't want to be the one to tell the boss that this good idea that we all agreed on just went south. It's just also possible, and I think this is even more realistic, because Biden seems to have a pretty good team that can talk to each other. But I think the more realistic thing is they were all looking at screens and kind of not believing what they were seeing and going into denial at first, because that would congrue with what we were told about how the White House reacted to the pessimistic scenarios when all this was getting briefed over the past month or so. And let me add one other thing about the bureaucracy, a point that I've been trying to make about this with Biden for a while. Biden saw two other presidents, leave aside Bush because it was his war, and so he and Rumsfeld weren't going to get out of it, fine. But for Obama and Trump, I think Biden looked at two administrations and saw presidents get slow-rolled by the bureaucracy. You know, presidents are not omnipotent. They can get slow-rolled. And I think Biden, my guess, and I'll just tell your listeners, it's just a guess you know, when the documents are all finally declassified and the testimony has all been recorded in Congress and all that stuff. My guess is that a big part of this is Biden said, oh no, not me. I'm not getting slow rolled into oblivion again. You know, I said, we're getting out in the summer of 2021 and nobody's going to come in and say, Mr. President, the summer of 2021 really means the spring of 2022 or maybe six months after that. And I think he may have just ripped off the band-aid thinking they're not telling me the truth, they're just slow rolling me like the last two guys, and then all this happened. That to me is the most plausible explanation.
0: Well, and that's another thing that Halberstam notes in his book, which is nothing major in the United States government, but certainly in the foreign policy establishment happens until and unless the bureaucracy is ready for it to happen.
1: Pretty much, and you know, one of the things, for people who haven't read the book, you know, I take a lot of static because I wrote a book defending experts and people always point at that book and say, see, That's what happens when experts run things. But Halberstam's point was that the best and the brightest were the kids who were good at going to school. They were like the Ivy League high SAT scoring nerds. They were not the old experts who had hands-on experience in Southeast Asia. They were not the Vietnamese and Chinese and Thai speaking, you know, regional experts. They were pushed out of the way. The narrow experts were pushed out of the way by the best and the brightest. You know, Steve Bannon used to walk around, apparently made a big deal about walking around the White House with that book under his arm. And it was very clear from everything he said that he didn't understand it. And people need to understand that when Halberstam talks about the best and the brightest, he's not talking about the experts. He's talking exactly about the people who had good educations, who thought they were smarter than the experts. And that may be in, you know, you brought it up as a historical analogy. We may find that that happened, that a bunch of people in Biden's administration said, look, you know. I went to Georgetown. I'm smart. I don't want to hear this stuff from you know gloomy CIA analysts. It's quite possible that that has played itself out all over again. But again, we'll know within a year or two as Congress looks into this.
0: Well, and two things about the White House before we move on to your new book is one, working at the White House imbues most people who've worked there Now, I was an advanced guy, so this never happened to me because I was always reminded how far down the totem pole I was. (laughs) (laughs) Imbues people with a belief that they know more about everything than anybody because they work at the White House. And two, to your point about the bad news piece, is I used to say when I taught a class years ago that there's only a certain number of people who have what are called walk-in privileges to the Oval Office. And they really want to keep those. And the more that you tell the president that something he decided on was a bad idea, the less likely you are to keep that privilege. And being able to walk into the center of world power, human power is a very intoxicating thing. Absolutely. And, you know, as I said, you don't want to be the guy
1: where the chief of staff or the president himself nods and says, Reed, you're a very bright young man. Thank you for your input. And again, have I mentioned that we're a little low on coffee right now? (laughs) Right. Uh, Look, I say this, you know, I was a 30-year-old staffer during the first Gulf War. I was personal staff, so I wasn't just buried down in a committee, you know, writing memos. Like my boss was across the hall from me. I was one of the guys. Pick up the phone, get in here. I want to know something. I had the experience of walking in there, and I'll tell you the story. During the first Gulf War, the senator said, "What do you think the casualties are going to be on?" You know, the first night. And at the time, this was all hush hush and classified and all that stuff. But I gave him really low numbers, and I said, "We're not going to lose a lot of aircraft. These are." Pretty bad air defense systems. The, we're not going to lose a lot of guys. And he thought I was softballing him. And he literally threw me out of. I mean, he didn't touch me, but he reamed me out in a hail of F-bombs and told me to get out of his office and, you know, not darken his door. And that afternoon, I was coming to my office around five and he was coming out of his. And I went, oh, god damn it. You know, like I'd been avoiding him all day. And we suddenly I'm like, we open up doors into each other's faces. And I said, you know, sir. And he said, uh, listen, I checked some of your numbers, talked to some other people. Sounds good, you know, or sounds right to me, or something like that. And I was like, I felt like I had been reprieved from death row. Well, that is how Senator Sam, sorry. <laughs> Yes. A senator <laughs> right? says he's sorry by saying you're not as big a jerk as I thought you were 10 <laughs> minutes ago, you know, but that is your duty in those kinds of offices to say, I'm willing to get fired and I'm willing to be cast into outer darkness. And I did it a couple of times and I had a great relationship with him. But I also knew that there were going to be times that if I said something in like, I would be cast into darkness to wail and gnash my teeth. Now, again, we're speculating here. We don't know if this is what happened in the Oval, but it would be surprising if it didn't because this clearly was an operation based on a lot of very rosy assumptions. And again, I think every organization needs one truth teller in it, one Eeyore sitting in the corner saying, Oh, well, here's all the ways this can go wrong and be valued for doing that. Part of the problem here is that we increasingly have an establishment that is built on people who are not experts but who are just kind of generically good at being smart. And that can really lead you down a bad path. You know, when you mentioned how um, working in the White House is intoxicating, I don't know if you remember this, but at the end of 91, Bush's approval rating, it's like 91%. Nobody thinks anything could go wrong. And some White House staffer was asked, like in a questionnaire, journalist doing an interview and said, you know, what do you think could really hurt your career, you know, at this point? And the guy actually said kryptonite. And nine months later, he was out of a job. But at those moments, when the president of the United States walks by, knocks on your door and says, good job, you say, that's it. There is no human being on earth smarter than I am right now.
0: All right. So listen, let's take it from Afghanistan and the inner workings of the White House and the personalities there to broadly more democracy. And so I want to talk about your new book that's coming out today. It's called Your Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy. Now, you challenge current depictions of the rise of illiberal and anti-democratic movements in the United States. Tell us what you're trying to communicate to folks. I mean, look, as we at the Lincoln Project are firm believers that what we're seeing is a rise of an authoritarian-ish movement, and nothing that we've seen in the immediate aftermath of Trump's loss last November, January 6th, or what we're seeing at the States has disabused us of that notion. But what are you trying to tell your readers?
1: And I'll just start by saying I think it's actually gotten worse since Trump left office, which is just the most depressing thing I could imagine because I was kind of hoping that Trump leaving, that there would still be Republicans who would say, all right, he's gone. It's time to stop coddling these crazy myths, but it it just hasn't happened. But I should point out at the outset, it's not a book about Trump. It's not even a book about the United States entirely. I mean, I talk about the rise of the liberal movements in Italy, Turkey, Poland, Ukraine, The United Kingdom of all places, the country that is the mother of all parliaments, India, all of the democracies are facing this. And of course, the answer that you get, especially from a lot of our friends on the left, but also from people on the very far right in the kind of horseshoe problem, right? The far left and the far right is, well, people hate democracy now because of globalization and snotty elites and impoverishment and forgotten towns and opioid addiction and i argue in the book that you know those are all real things some are worse than others i mean i think that globalization is still a net positive for most people in most places of the world but i think we haven't looked in ourselves we haven't asked ourselves what are we not doing that sustains democracy because democracy is an act of will it's a choice it doesn't just happen you have to expend actual energy to sustain democracy. And the three things that I point out in the book that I think are by no means exhaustive, it's not a complete list, but the things that I thought were most important were an extended period of affluence, which I think a lot of people bristle at hearing because they all think they live in the worst economy that has ever been created, mostly because most of them never lived through the 1970s. They think that they are living in a very violent and dangerous time, even though we are living through a period of extended peace. Here we are, Reid, talking about you know, the, the fall of Kabul, and yet the number of people that have been actually had to serve in the military or live under any kind of military threat of any kind since the end of the Cold War is minuscule, which is not to deprecate the horrors that our men and women in uniform have gone through, but that's a very small part of American society. I mean, most people have just lived their lives. They don't even think about Afghanistan. They don't even think about Iraq. Look, President Bush said, go to the mall. And people went to the mall for the next 25 years, you know, 20, 25 years. So this period of extended affluence, a period of extended peace, and a rapid rise in living standards that has really made people think that any kind of inconvenience or problem in their daily life is the failure of, not just the failure of any one government, but the failure of the idea of government at all. Look at the way we've reacted to the pandemic and the fact that this globalized scientific large cooperative block of countries have managed to create a vaccine in a year that's unheard of and people are tapping their watches and going what took so long and then because the government told them they should take it half of us said i'm not taking it i think underlying all of this and the kind of twin culprits i identify in the book are the growth since the early 1970s of narcissism we and people in the west in the advanced countries This is empirically traceable. You can actually see it happening. We are increasingly a narcissistic society. We have an incredible sense of entitlement. We have an incredible sense of our own importance on a daily basis. You know, this is why we have cults and conspiracy theories forming. And people going on airplanes shoeless. Well, let's not get me started about shoelessness on airplanes, (laughs) which has always been a sign of the end of Western civilization. But you know, I'm actually going to make a serious point out of this. The unwillingness of people to deport themselves with even a modicum of dignity and self-respect is part of this narcissistic sense that, look, I want to fly on an airplane and I'm basically an overgrown three-year-old. And if I want to pull my shoes off and put my feet up on your seat, that's your problem because I'm a four-year-old, you know, and I'm a badly trained four-year-old. And the other problem that comes from all of this is resentment. It's really interesting because some of the more liberal folks who've already read the book have said, you know, you're not really focusing enough on things like income inequality. My argument is that's a real problem because it chokes off investment. There's too much money at the top of the Parthenon that isn't getting reinvested. But what you find when you start looking into the data and you look at the kind of anecdotal and daily experiences of people, they don't resent the super rich. They resent the people who are just a little bit richer than they are. They are turning on their neighbors because their neighbors have granite countertops and they don't. And how do they do that? And I talk about this whole chapter in the book where we have become hyper-connected through social media. People spend all day looking at each other's houses, walking through each other's kitchens, evaluating each other's cars. Look, do this as a thought experiment. Imagine that somebody walks in and says, you know, you work for a medical firm, right? And here, the chairman of your company makes 100 times what you make. And people are going to go, wow, that sucks. Then say, oh, no, I got it wrong. The chairman makes 10,000 times what you make. People will be enraged, even though their life is no different than it was 10 seconds earlier, because they don't experience that. And I challenged a lot of people who argued with me over the years I was writing this. I said, tell me how that actually plays out in daily life, that you know, Bill Gates has 10 yachts and you only have a fishing boat. Where people really focus their anger is to say, how come my neighbor down the street is driving a new Lexus and I'm still driving a Honda? How does that happen? What did that guy do to screw me over? And I think a big part of that is being driven by social media, by a completely psychotic and increasingly insane cable television presence, and particularly Fox, which Fox is a whole book in itself at this point as an enemy of democracy and. I shouldn't say an enemy of democracy. I would better put this of undermining the foundations of civic belief. I mean, Fox basically gets out there and tells you every day that everything is bad and you should hate everything and be constantly angry. But Fox and social media are just part of that. We really have come to believe that we should just be angry all the time about everything. And I think that that's how it goes.
0: Let me ask you this because a couple of months ago, I watched Citizen K about Kodorovsky who was an oligarch early in Putin's term, right, owned one of the big oil companies, was a gajillionaire, got on the wrong side of Putin. They threw him in prison. And now he's an expat living in London. But he said, democracy and freedom and liberty, you don't do that from the couch. You've got to actually have to get off the couch and go do some work. But it seems like Americans were almost spectators to our own lives. Yes. And we spend a lot of time alone.
1: I say in the book, you know, it used to be that if you wanted to go to a casino, you had to go endure other human beings. If you wanted to play blackjacks, you you had to go put up with other people, right? And sit at a table. Now you pick up your phone or you open your laptop and say, give me a virtual blackjack table. You know, Robert Putnam years ago wrote a book called Bowling Alone. You know, there's a lot of kind of chewy data in it, but Putnam also pointed out that civic attitudes decline in people who are big TV watchers and are actually increased in people that are big readers. You know, when people ask me, how do we reverse this? I say, okay, well, stop watching so much TV and read a newspaper. You know, and look, I'm a culprit in all this, right? I have a big social media presence. I'm on TV a lot. I'm paid to have opinions about things. And even I don't sit and watch four hours of television every night. And yet people do. They just sit there and by 11 o'clock, they are in a complete lather. And as much as I'd like to pin all of this on Fox, I can't. You know, it's ironic to think that. 15 years ago, I was actually defending the existence of Fox as a kind of necessary corrective to a kind of politically monochromatic media environment. But it's not just, it's talk radio, it's the internet websites, and all of them do the same thing. They monetize rage. But I'm going to say something even more unexpected. You can blame the internet, you can blame talk radio, you can blame cable TV, but you know why it succeeds? Because we want it. And this is something I point out in the book. McDonald's did not sell billions of hamburgers because people don't like hamburgers. Not only do we like it, we demand it. You know, there's a great little vignette in the book where a guy talked to the New York Times, he was a voter in California, and he said, Look, I don't really agree with Trump much, but I just think it'd be cool to see what would happen if he got elected because Clinton would be boring and I want to see people fighting with each other. I mean, he says it point blank. This voter, this kind of 48 year old voter in California says, I think it's boring when people get along. I just want to see what happens when Trump comes in and everybody fights with each other. You can't even blame Trump for that. You can't blame TV. That's just somebody who says, hey, I'm bored and I want politics to be gladiator games.
0: So it's the idea of a bunch of seventh graders in a circle surrounding two kids yelling fight, 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 fight." exactly. Because life is
1: boring. And this goes back to my point I make in the book about when you live in a society that is affluent at peace with very high levels of technology, you know, life is not particularly challenging in that sense. This huge amount of extra time on our hands enables us to get out there and say, I want to be heroic. I want life to be interesting. I want to be part of a big story somewhere. And I want to have my say about it, even if I don't know what I'm talking about. Now we've all been trained particularly by, and this is something that you can blame all the cable networks for, that they all turn and say, we want to know what you think. Send us an email, send us a Facebook post, tweet at us. I don't have time for that. I want intelligent people who have been briefed, who know these issues, to ask tough questions that require knowledge. Yet that's what we've kind of trained the public to do, is to say, every one of us is the most important person who ever lived.
0: So it's two things. One is that a nation full of idols' hands is one hell of a devil's workshop. And two is that now everybody gets to be nationally, potentially, the crazy guy who shows up to city council meetings. It's funny
1: you say that because there's a quote in the book from a writer named Evgeny Shimkin who says, you know, every town has an end of the world guy. Where it's the sandwich board guy and he's walking up and everybody goes, oh, yeah, that's Billy. You know, Billy lives in our town. Not a bad guy, but he's not a bad guy. You know, just don't when he yells at you, just nod and say, hi, Billy, and keep moving on. But what Shimkin pointed out was that the Internet and connectivity, every end of the world guy has reached out to every other end of the world guy. And now it's a movement. Now it's like a union. And that has happened with a lot of situations where people who have, you know, I would say either crackpot ideas or just undemocratic ideas have reached out and said, you know, even though I'm the only guy in my town that thinks this way, there's a lot of towns in America and they feel like a majority when in fact they're actually a very small number of people and they can have an outsized influence and really have an outsized impact on kind of the daily life of a democracy.
0: Well, and that's a good segue to what I want to talk about next. But before we go, is there a way out of this for us?
1: Oh, boy. You know, I was hoping to get away without that question because I really wanted to be optimistic. And I'll just warn readers that, you know, the end of the book is a little gloomy. I'm not sure there is. I think to paraphrase the who, the kids are all right. I think the younger generation is coming up behind us. I think their hearts are a little less hardened and I think they are used to living in a world with social media and they don't think it's the God's honest truth about everything. You know, it's really interesting when you look at examinations of this problem, the people that are most likely to be sucked in by internet nonsense and conspiracy theories and Facebook memes are people 55 and older. They are more likely to be retired. They are not internet savvy. They have no idea what they're looking at. If we can survive another 10 or 15 years, where this demographic starts to peter out and move out of the voting pool. And maybe that's the way out of it. But I'm not sure there's any structural changes that are really going to fix this right now.
0: So, something that we started talking about before we started recording was this idea that, you know, much to your talk about the internet and social media and political leadership and the breakdown in sort of civic political discourse and the idea that we're all, you know, as Anna Applebaum talks about in her book, the idea that there's a common discussion. Is, as you noted earlier in the show, there's a vaccine. It's 95% efficacious. 50% of people aren't going to take it because somebody else said they should. You know, thinking back on your experience in government, you know, your book about expertise, how have we gotten to this idea, this mass, and I'm going to call it mass because it's about half the country, this mass disbelief that if someone has gone to school, is a medical doctor, an epidemiologist, or whatever, That they might actually know what it is they're talking about. Billions and billions of dollars spent, hundreds of thousands of nameless, faceless heroes who come up with this vaccine in a year, as you noted, um, are now probably sitting there, mouths agape going, are you kidding me? Is this really what we're doing? The one thematic link back to
1: the death of expertise is the problem of narcissism. And you can sum up a lot of these folks, it's not even disbelief, because I think some of them really are kind of out to lunch and just don't care about science and really believe that there are microchips in the you know vaccine and all that crap. But I think that you can sum up a lot of them in the phrase, you're not the boss of me. Americans have become, again, it's like a childlike understanding of freedom. You know, we used to understand freedom as I'm a fully empowered citizen. I am responsible for my own actions. I have rights. I have obligations to my fellow citizens and to my
0: country. The idea now is not, I shouldn't yell fire in a crowded theater, but it's my God-given American right to do so. It's my right to do so. And if
1: it pisses you off, all the better. And so you're not the boss of me is like this rallying cry. When I was writing The Death of Expertise, I would talk to doctors and doctors can tell you this, like, you know, you ought to cut some of the booze out of your diet and lose a few pounds. Um, You're not the boss of me. You know, like people go out and say, I'm going to have cheeseburgers on a sex pack because who's this guy in a white jacket to tell me what to do? We have almost become like, you know, oppositional toddlers who have so imbibed the whole notion that freedom is completely without reference or context, that freedom is whatever I can do and whatever I want to do at any given moment, especially if it makes you mad. But I think also, and I think you can't underestimate this part, rejecting any kind of knowledge or established authority is very empowering for people who have a very strong narcissistic foundation in their personality, right? It's like, why am I not doing this? Why do I disbelieve these doctors? Because it is very empowering to me to believe that I am smarter than a doctor. You talk to these people in person, you run into them on the internet and they say, I've done my research. You're stupid. I am smart. I always refer to this as Fredo Nation, you know, like from The Godfather. I'm smart. I can do things. Not like people say about me. When in fact, there's nothing wrong with admitting that there are just things you don't know about that you need help with. I wrote a piece uh, some years ago where I had a house fire and I had all these experts. And these were not guys with PhDs, right? I mean, these are contractors, plumbers, electricians, bricklayers. And here I am with my PhD and my fancy book on nuclear weapons that I'd written a few years ago. And they're all saying, Mr. Nichols, can you move out of the way before the chimney falls on you? You know, you're, you're really not helping anything by being here. Why don't you and the missus go and, you know, Starbucks right around the corner. We'll just handle this. And I came to realize, that, you know, asking your electrician, so uh, what kind of wiring are you putting in there? I mean, he could tell you that it's number six linguine for all it would make difference to you, but it's empowering and it makes you feel like you're in charge and it makes you feel like you're smart and you know things and that bleeds into politics you know this conservative rallying cry we live in a republic not a democracy conservatives have forgotten what that means it means in a republic you delegate the ability to make decisions to somebody else we don't all gather in the middle of the country every four years and vote on a budget and yet people now say well i just want my representatives to go to washington and do whatever i'm shouting at them to do well then you don't need representatives You could run the country by internet poll. And I'm sure there are people out there who'd rather do that. But America, the constitutional republic in which we live, is that we empower our representatives to talk with experts, to use their judgment, to talk with other representatives, and to craft policies that make sense. And Americans don't want to do that because now they feel like, well, you're looking down on me. You didn't ask me if I really wanted Obamacare. And I'm just going to point out this statistic. There's about a third of the country that wants to repeal Obamacare, but keep the Affordable Care Act because they literally don't know it's the same thing. And then they complain, well, nobody asks us about policy. This goes back to our Afghanistan discussion. What do you want us to do in Afghanistan? I want you to get out unless we should
0: stay in, in which case you should stay in until we should get out. What does that mean? That's unfortunately the common thread. And one thing I wanted to say about the way you were describing people who know so much and are so confident, that's the one thing Trig V. Olson, who's one of our senior advisors who we had on the episode last time, talks about the part of the extremism piece is oversimplified ideas that generate extreme overconfidence in that person's belief that they are right. It's unnerving to live in a world
1: that's moving at the pace that it does. And so it's very empowering and it's very reassuring to say, I know things now. I'm being lied to. Everything is nonsense. I have finally deciphered all of these things because that's less scary than saying, I just have to rely on other people. And you know, this isn't new Richard Hofstetter in a book written almost 60 years ago said the modern citizen reads the newspaper in a kitchen surrounded by gadgets and news stories and things going on that if he were honest with himself, he would admit he doesn't understand half of, but it's okay we don't build a house by learning how to cut glass windows and hew wood and lay down pipelines to water we have people that do that and we trust each other to do that and that's gone it's people don't like that because it feels threatening and scary and they think they're being judged or looked down on and so as you say they become super overconfident that i can control my environment i know everything that's going on around me and you sheeple are the people that are the weak and lost but I am the person who really gets it. And that's just poisoning us at this point.
0: I was on a call earlier today with some folks, and we were talking about schools and specifically kids, teachers, parents in places like Florida, Texas, and now Arizona. And I noted that there was a vote yesterday in Baytown, Texas, by the Baytown Independent School District to require masks in their schools. Now, I went to high school and college in Texas. And let me say this. Baytown is not a bastion of liberalism is oil wells and refineries from one end of town to the other i don't know what the vote for trump was last year but my guess is it was pretty overwhelming so my question is does it take something like what we're seeing in texas for people in baytown to climb out of the reality distortion field and say kids are getting sick we got to go back to school the hospital's full does it literally have to come down to like life and death for now Americans, but maybe just humans in this time in the 21st century, to be able to climb out of that bubble.
1: When I wrote The Death of Expertise, people would ask me about how we get out of that, the kind of anti-knowledge zone. And I, I always said, well, the things that make people rely on experts are a war, a depression, or a pandemic. And I was really, I thought, well, I was a little too optimistic there about how a pandemic would make us all kind of snap out of it, sober up, and pull together. It could be that I was pessimistic too early because it does look like the Delta variant, which is no joke. And in places that for a year and a half have been saying, oh, COVID's, you know, it's a big pandemic and it's a fake. Well, these are your neighbors going into the ICU. They're not crisis actors. You know them. And I'm sorry to say that that may have been the thing, you know, that until it happened in your village, so to speak. So maybe that's the way. I also think, It's taking people a while to let go of the partisan connection to say, listen, if I want my kid to wear a mask, it doesn't mean that I'm a gravy sucking socialist commie flag hater, right? It just means that I'm a concerned parent and it doesn't have any political impact. Because one of the things that has been happening, and Trump, this is, I'll go back now to blaming Trump in particular, that Trump put on steroids was everything is a political act. And he had a lot of partners over on the left. You know, there was just a big, internet flap because all flaps on the internet are big and stupid about, you know, can a white woman write about noodles? I don't even understand it, but apparently this turned into like a giant kerfuffle and hate mail and people yelling at each other. So, you know, people on the right and left, it may well be that as we get a little more into normalcy, and that's one of the reasons I really liked voting for Joe Biden. I want a boring president. I don't want any more drama queens and theatrics and all that stuff. It may be that people can say things like, listen, I can cook noodles and it's not an act of racial appropriation or signaling of my political beliefs. I can put a mask on my kid and it doesn't mean that I'm not a good American and I didn't vote for the right guy. You know, Maybe we can just live our lives and do stuff without everything being a political sign. I'm not that optimistic about it. I think As I say in the book, part of what we've done is break into tribes that are constantly in touch with each other through the media and social media and are constantly checking in on each other to see what we're doing. But maybe that's what happened in that town. I mean, at some point, you know, you say, yeah, you know, I'm a voter and I have strong political beliefs, but here's the basic belief I have. I don't want my kid to get sick. I don't want my parents to die. I don't want somebody with a heart attack not getting into an ICU bed because there's a guy with a ventilator in it. I mean, you're giving me a little bit of hope here, and I'm not usually the most optimistic guy.
0: Well, and let's hope that as we get into the coming years, that maybe this fever, both literal and metaphorical, will break. You know, I, I was thinking about this when you're talking about, you know, where you grew up, and, you know, that was the ice cream store. This is where I delivered the newspaper. And, you know, I call it the sort of gauzy rearview mirror of life. It always seems like better than it was. What you left out was like there was a bully this guy was a real pain in the ass neighbor, all the other things, right? You leave those things out because they suck to go through the first time. So why are you going to relive them?
1: It's funny you say that because I do talk in the book a lot about nostalgia and how people always remember the past better than the present. Of course, by the time you get into the seventies, we're nostalgic for the fifties. And we remember that as a golden time. Then in the 80s, we have this kind of new frontier chic that comes up in like the early 1960s were the best time ever. And I think people just do this. And again, it's part of that sense of rising entitlement that everything that happened before was better than what's going on now because I'm a victim. I'm going through the hardest times ever and no one's ever really had that. And I think one thing that's interesting about this is the only time that wasn't true were people, you know, your age, my age, whose parents lived through the depression. None of us ever said, boy, I wish it was 1936, <laughs> you know, and I, and I wish I was making soup out of my shoelaces with my dad, but it is really poisonous. You mentioned to Anne Applebaum, and while I want people to go buy my book, you know, Anne Applebaum's book on the Twilight of Democracy is a really good book. And Anne points out that, you know, this is a, now a huge international cycle of restorative nostalgia. Like, it's not just that I remember the 50s better, but now I'm going to find the people who screwed me out of living in the 50s. I'm going to find the people who made it so that the 2021 is awful instead of 1951. And they don't remember that, yeah, the guy who ran the candy store used to beat up his wife. The guy who was the barber on the corner, you know, was selling uh, hooch out of the back that the cops that you remember as the friendly guys on the beat were on the take. You filter all that out. I'll just end with this about nostalgia. I had, a, I had a letter from a guy who grew up in my hometown, but much earlier than I did. He said, geez, I grew up there in the early 60s and I just loved it. And I said, well, of course you did. Your dad was a you know, white collar professional. You went to a great high school. You weren't black. You weren't a woman. <laughs> you, know? you weren't hassled by the cops. It's easy to remember those times when you, know, you were a kid because when you were nine years old and buying Batman bubblegum cards, you weren't getting your ass kicked by the cops and I think people just forget that, and we're really immersed in it now. Nostalgia is one of the most poisonous things that's overtaking us now, and Trump, again, really beat that drum, and he really used it. You know, He talked about the good old days, but I would challenge people listening to us to say, think about what the world looked like 30 or 35 years ago, and ask yourself if you would really go back and trade it for the way you're living now.
0: Well, listen, Tom, this has been terrific, so thank you for coming. Before we let you go, where can our listeners find you online? I am on Twitter at all one word Radio Free Tom,
1: like Radio Free Europe, except with Tom. And you can find my writing in places like USA Today and The Atlantic.
0: And just remember, everyone, that Tom's new book out today is called Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy. I'm sure you can find it on Amazon, maybe your local bookseller. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Tom, once again, thanks for joining me today. And to everybody else, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Marie Galen. See you on the next episode.